Hey, I'm Glenn Hillman, and I'm going to tell you about my first personal business failure. I was part of a team at Progress Software. We went public, and fortunately, I was there early enough to make enough money. And so then I joined an ex-customer of mine, and we started our own company. And I put $100,000 of my own money into it. It was a sales automation system before there was a sales force. It was, we got pretty good funding, and we crashed and burned. Failure, a term burdened with such negativity that it can end careers, companies, fame, and fortune. However, those who have experienced it know that failure can also serve as a catalyst for progress. Even though it is rarely part of the narrative, it is time to delve into the heart of the story and listen to the vulnerable perspective of accomplished entrepreneurs, leaders, artists, athletes, and those who inspire us. Join your hosts, Alex Love and Elliot Volkman, as we dismantle the stigma surrounding failure and empower you to transform these challenges into opportunities on your own journey forward. Welcome to Mastering the Art of Failing. Hello and welcome to the official first episode of Mastering the Art of Failing. I'm Elliot Volkman, the producer and also co-host, alongside Alex Love. This is going to be a pilot season, so if you enjoy what you hear, please absolutely let us know so we can determine what direction we're going to go, if any direction. In just a moment, we're going to hand this back over to Glenn Hellman, our wonderful first guest. But just for a little bit of context on what we're building right now, this is a series not just devoted to successful leaders, business folks, founders, but people in life who have experienced different pains and areas of vulnerability and have been able to overcome them and use those challenges as a tool to grow and move forward. So if you like what you hear, provide us some feedback. And hopefully we'll stick around. To learn more about our series and podcast, just go to failingpod.com. You can subscribe to our Substack there and, of course, on your favorite podcast channels. All right, Glenn, it is now off to you. We crashed and burned for two reasons. One is we didn't do enough customer discovery to understand that the people who had to make the system work, the sales force, didn't really like the amount of transparency we provided to their bosses. And so they sabotaged the system. And the second thing was, at that time, the internet wasn't ubiquitous. In fact, it was non-existent in the commercial world outside of universities. So we required dial-up, which the technology just couldn't. You know, Today, if we did it, the technology side would still work. Probably the transparency side still wouldn't. So we... I had a $100,000 loss. The VCs had a $6 million loss. And what I learned is do customer discovery and make sure the technology infrastructure is there before you start something. Glenn, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing today and how you learned from that failure? Today, I have two jobs. Half time, I work for the NSF, National Science Foundation, who pays University of Maryland. And at University of Maryland, I teach University researchers from 11 universities that include Carnegie Mellon, UPenn, Maryland, UNC. And we teach these people who have incredible inventions, world-changing inventions like turning wood, which is a renewable resource, into replacement for steel that's cheaper than steel, lighter than steel, and just as strong as steel. Or So things that can actually change, and it's renewable. So things that can actually change the world, I do that half time. And the other half time, I'm an executive coach. I work with people who are starting companies and I ask them a lot of questions. 
I challenge them. And I'm a place where they can go for unfettered advice without an agenda. Awesome. Sounds good. Yeah. And we met a long time ago, <laughs> at least 10 years ago, probably in a combination of things. Like you definitely came into the digital district world, and I think I helped out with some of the the nonprofits and projects that you were working on when I was at GW for my MBA. So we've interacted a couple of different times in different focuses. So it's been cool to see what you've been doing over the years. So let's dig back in to your okay. failure. So you mentioned dial-up. So should we make the noise together? No, I'm kidding. Oh, I'm adding that in. That's going right on top. <laughs> it's been a minute since I've heard that noise, or at least coming out of my computer. So why don't you take us back to, you know, how did you get involved with that initial, you know, startup? What interested you? What was your role? And, you know, like, how did you sort of get into that situation in the first place? So at Progress, one of my customers' company was a manufacturing system. And the CEO of that company went public, left the company, and asked me to join it. So I was going to run the business side, and he was going to run the engineering side. And I ran sales and marketing. Matter of fact, I invested a year before I joined the company because they did their software development. And there's a big difference between doing a startup today and doing a startup 15 years ago. And mm -hmm. dial-up's one of those big differences. If you got funded 20 years ago, that was, first of all, you didn't have to have revenue because to create a company required at least three to six million dollars. Because you didn't have the internet, you had to hire people who worked in your office, you needed to buy and support multiple computer systems because there were so many different types of computers that you had to operate on multiple. So it cost a lot of money. So if you were one of the five companies who got funded, you were probably going to make money. For instance, Progress Software, we were probably the third best company in the market out of five. And when we went public, we, we made, it was a $360 million public offering. Number one was Oracle. So, you know, it hard was, to compete. And there. that was, so we, compete, yeah, they're still, the progress is still there. They're not the same company, but it was just getting money from a VC, almost guaranteed success that you would finish on the, you know, on the, you would be one of the top five finishers. Whereas today, because of open source, outsourcing, the fact that people don't have to come to your office and that computer power is portable, you know, with C and C++, you can run on any platform. It only takes about $200,000 to start a company. And therefore, the barrier to entry is so much lower that there are so many more competitors. And because of this, VCs have become much more risk averse. They don't invest as early as they would have because their money doesn't guarantee success. So that that's actually brings up an interesting point. I, I could be misspeaking here, but obviously beyond what you do today, you, you're, you were an angel investor or you probably still are, but like you are. I am not. No. Okay. I screwed up. We're editing this out. That's I, I can tell you that too. So. Angel investing to me was angel philanthropy. Okay. I could mm. give my money to it, it with, with, it was more fun than giving it to the American Heart Association or the American Cancer Association. But I assumed I was going to write this off. Now, if I gave it to the American Heart Association, you'd be able to write it off the day you wrote the check. 
it took seven years to write off a lot of my investments in the other. As a matter of fact, I have one still that's alive and 15 years old. So I did, so I made a total of 11 investments and I made about 150% on my money, 50% over. Had I invested in the S&P, the same amount of money, I would have made about 250% at one one thousandth of the risk, lower risk. So I am no more, I am no longer a venture philanthropist, but <laughs> my money in the same place. A little less stressful. Yeah, yeah that's totally Yeah, I've fair. done my part. I've, I've tried to help a few companies and I've, out of those, I had two successes, which was, you know, I was the first investor in social tables, Don Berger, which pretty much, that's where most of my profit came from. And then there was another one that was, and boy, I forgot the name of it, but it, when I, that one paid off everything I invested. So when Don came in, it was all profit. It's crazy. I mean, you know, at least it worked out for you. I mean, I, I know just as many people who just burnt themselves out and they will never invest again. You have to do a portfolio approach. You have to, mm. you have to do it over time and you have to place a lot of bets if you're going to make money. Yeah. Mm. yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't know. It's kind of wild that you even brought up social tables. I, I am familiar that you kind of put money in there, but I even use that myself today. So like the fact that your dollars stretched into something that people are using, I can't remember who bought it. It might be C-Vent actually. It was C-Vent. Yeah, it was C-Vent. It was a $100 million sale. Yeah. Which, so, you know, is pretty good. Yeah, just one of my. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. You know, regardless of like, the breadth of experience that you have. You've been through like the seed stuff. You now chat with people, walk them through it so they know what they're going to be getting into. I'm sure they're having conversations with similar people who have been in those shoes. So that kind of experience, it doesn't come from just, you know, out of the blue. It comes from exactly what you just said. You've run into some scenarios which didn't always pay out. Some, uh, you know, paid off for the, the mistakes, but obviously... You know, you learn through experience in those situations. So let me, so at, in my coaching job as a coach, the best coaches I've ever met don't have business experience. They're psychologists. Because if you ask me, uh, if you, if, if you ask me, what would you do? I would do you a disservice if I said, this is what I'd do. My answer would be, I could tell you what I'd do and it might work if you were me. We are here to figure out what you would do. So sometimes pattern recognition gets in the way of helping somebody make a decision. The real value of a business coach is critical thinking. The kind of critical thinking, for instance, that can look at a company like Trustify and say, this is a scam. This is never going to work. This guy is lying. So it's critical thinking and then forcing your mentee or the client that you're working with, asking the questions, but they need to come up with the answers themselves because people have a higher probability of succeeding in plans they've developed themselves. Yeah, that, that absolutely makes sense. And I, I feel like I can add a little bit of color to that scenario, <laughs> only a little bit. And for the record, our first episode, Alex and I were trying to like figure out what our kickoff is going to be. I was like, that is it. Working there, trying to fix it from the inside, which was not going to work. Only to find out that the CEO essentially used social engineering to defraud investors. Yeah, I don't know how much critical thinking would have avoided that scenario. Like, 
that was that was a pretty intense amount of things going on to yeah get that across. Okay, if you were... situations <laughs> that I did not get involved in back. Yeah, in you're today. welcome. I forgot about it until you mentioned it, and I was like, I remember that. So I can tell you the story. So I had a pretty popular blog, and it got more popular because of things like Trustify. And what happened was. Somebody called me and said, I just saw this guy pitch and he said he's a Harvard grad and I know he's not. And so then I just started doing a little bit of research and digging and saying, just assume everything this guy says is not true. Yeah. And, you know, peeling back the onion, it just, it was a rotten onion. Yeah. Oh my God. And to add to that, it was like a, one of those like certification things that anyone gets entry into. It was before right, people like were Harvard super Harvard Business familiar. School Online or, you know, yeah, whatever. It was something yeah. like that. Or wasn't even that. It was, it like was some, yeah, like, it was, it was, all you needed was a credit card. Yeah, exactly. Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so many here, it's a lot about things that people can't easily check, especially with now, you know, the technology and the internet that we have. Right. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. The internet, you know, it's, it used to be so easy to lie. It's not as easy any longer. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Fair point. So, I mean, maybe we can kind of pivot back over <laughs> away from the things that I would, as much as I would love to talk about. It. Uh, that is a whole other conversation and maybe a whole other podcast with defrauding investors and all that. But yeah, I, I want to dig more into your background because obviously, again, as a coach, you're interacting with people who are you know, essentially what would be our listeners, people who are interested in growing beyond their current capacity. Maybe they're through like the, the pits of sorrow or depths of sorrow or whatever those terminologies we like to use for startup founders. But yeah, I don't know. Can we look back at that conversation that we kicked this off with is, you know, you, you ran into a scenario where obviously there are two big names still out there. Yours didn't quite make it, but you know, how did you navigate around that? What did you learn from it outside of like the technology limitations that pulled, pulled you back from it? Well, I'd like to say that I learned from that one situation, but I didn't. So I made the same mistakes multiple times. I will tell you that what I've learned over time is, and what I do from the Maryland instruction side, the NSF side is teaching people how to do unbiased customer discovery. So had I looked at the job that we were, everybody was doing what we were going to help them automate and do better. There were sales managers, there were salespeople, there were CFOs who would use our system and everybody had a job and a responsibility. So I should have documented their job, documented how my, 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 I would fit in their workflow. And then I should have interviewed and I should have interviewed every type constituent or type of person who would be involved in the ecosystem. They should have had enough interviews because the salespeople would have told me, no, we'll never use it. No, we'll. So it is talk to your base. So, and, and, a, and never stop. So I will bet you that Blockbuster never talked to their customers after they started. Do you think Netflix knows what their market and what their people want. They have people who are calling out, talking to customers, understanding the trends and constantly changing. But it's all customer discovery. It's all making sure you have customer market fit and that it, and that customer market fit never changes. For instance, in the first startup, 
Today, the infrastructure's there that the, at least the technology would have worked. It wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been abrasive. You know, it was, it was a difficulty that if the technology worked, perhaps the fact that the salespeople didn't like it would not have sabotaged it because the value that it gave management was greater. So are you suggesting as, you know, a founder or startup, you are out there pip pounding the pavement yourself, right? Talking to customers, not necessarily relying on these third-party sources to do that. You know, what kind of questions would you go out there asking and, and how would you sort of formulate that plan? Okay. So so let's look at a hypothetical. Let's say I invested, invented a new, a new hip, a hip replacement, okay? It gets used by people who have bad hips, probably people in their 60s, it gets, it gets the actual, so they're the beneficiary. The end user is the surgeon. So I need to look at what that surgeon does and how they do their operation. Does it make their job better? Do they have to relearn techniques? Is there going to be friction for them to use it? I have to talk to the insurance companies and see, will it get reimbursed? Is it better than the other systems? Is it cheaper? Will it last longer? Will it be more successful? Can I get it through insurance? I have to talk to the CFO of, of the uh, hospital. You know, what, what are his economic decisions? And I need to understand, and I need to not talk about the hip. I need to ask them questions about the job they do. So I need to know how do they prioritize things? I need to know how have they entered when you brought in new products before, how have you brought them in? What are your priorities for bringing in new products? You know, what is the priority and what is the satisfaction with the current way you're doing things? So I need to know what satisfaction level is for certain things. And I'll give you a great example of how priorities and satisfaction levels don't match or are important. If five years ago I said, how important is it to have a cure for COVID? Everybody'd say it's a 10 out of 10. And if I said, how satisfied are you with the current COVID cures? They'd say it's a one out of 10. That tells me that's a great market. Ask the same question today. There is no cure. So how satisfied are you with the cure? Well, you might say four because it's not, and when I say how urgent is it, you might say two. It's not that important anymore. So understanding both urgency and satisfaction levels and then figuring out who has the highest urgency. So you want to, you want to, you want to pick a subset of a market. You don't want to go after it. You never want to go after an entire market. You want to pick your beachhead market. Those who have the ability to pay a high priority or, or low satisfaction level with what they're doing. Um, high priority, but also are they early adopters? Are they risk averse? Are they, do they have a good network when you're, is it a small community where if you get five of them, you can get a hundred? So you want to have all these factors and characteristics and pick what's my beachhead. I think that's a really important orientation. A lot of people get so excited about the product or the service and they go in like hard pitch, right? Like, here's what I got. Here's my idea. It's the best thing ever. 
And then it fails, right? Because they don't do their due diligence to think about, yes, maybe it is a great idea. Maybe it is the next big thing. But does anyone want to buy it? Does it solve a critical problem? Is it a better mousetrap? So it's really difficult, I think, to get people off of that idea that, yeah, you may have the next best 100 million idea. But if you don't have the data to support it and you haven't gone out and done your due diligence. Exactly. Might be a turd. <laughs> and, and, and Alex, if, if, you, if you went to an investor, they want to know you're selling to a billion dollar market. But they also want to know it's not going to cost you a billion dollars to attack that market. They want to know that you're, in, you're, you're smart about it. So, for instance, I have a client who has a software product that competes against Atlassian. It's a software development product. And Atlassian is a gorilla. This mm -hmm. is a small company. And so when we looked at it, we said, what separates you from Atlassian? What is your beachhead? And we decided highly regulated, secure clients is where they had an advantage. So now, as they go into that market, those people in banks all talk to each other. Those mm -hmm. people, the other thing that happens is product requirements. When they say, well, we need this feature, we need this feature. Their feature gets stronger and stronger for that specific market. So that they are building a wall around and own it. And when they get enough of a market share in that niche, that highly regulated niche, then they can start moving into an adjacent market. But you don't want... Markets are like the 10 pins in a bowling alley. You don't throw the ball at all 10. You throw it at the first pin and have that knock down all the others. Yeah, that's good advice. So the other thing you mentioned in your initial failure story was, was two things, right? Twofold, you know, failure to do your customer discovery. And then the other thing was technology not sort of meeting, you know, the requirements. Is there, did you think going into the situation that the technology would catch up, that, you know, the internet was coming, that it would sort of, you know, eventually catch up to you? And is there any time, especially now where we are with AI and all of this big technology coming up, do you ever hedge your bets and put the technology or the product out there and, you know, maybe you do get lucky. Maybe the technology does catch up. I, I would not, I, I would say no. So, you know, I did, one of the things that made me cranky was I did 10 years doing turnarounds. So a VC, I, there was a local company here called Ikimbo. It was my second turnaround I worked on. The VCs hired me and it was also a mismatch. It, it was a messaging platform. And there are many products like it now, 10 years later, that do what it did. It was a messaging platform that worked within enterprise software products. So anyway, like Twilio does the kind of thing it did back then. But we were never going to make it work. I, if, I would not take that kind of risk betting that the market's catch up. Okay, fair enough. So you mentioned turnarounds. That was a big part of your career. Any critical lessons learned or, or just common failures you saw and reasons why you got pulled in? You know, depending on the, how you count them, out of the five I did, only one was based on, had a management team that was nefarious, that I would chalk up the failures to Danny Boyce type nefarious um and, and the guy never went to jail. And, I, you know, I should he have? Yeah. Which is probably why I got so vicious with Danny. Because, you know, the first 
when I got there, there were 30 people. And after 30 days, I had to cut it down to 14. Wow. wow. I had another one where when I got there, there were 30 people. And in the first day, there were 299 because I got rid of the masseuse um, who was on but I did have to stand in front of that group and let them know that there were only going to be 70 of us 90 days from now, or else there'd be none of us. And none of those had made, none of those people who lost their jobs and couldn't make a paycheck for their families, none of them did anything wrong except for go to work for the wrong company. Most of the time, it's been bad customer market, bad product market. And that's why I'm a big believer in it solid customer discovery process before you launch. Are there any good resources or frameworks that you encourage your students and, you know, executive coaches to take a look at so they can learn a lot more about, you know, how to design that process for their product and service? So if you are in the state of Maryland, you can actually, anybody in the state of Maryland, not just a Maryland alum, can, can go to our classes that we run. Just go to UMD. I-Corp, I, capital I dash C-O-R-P-S. But many other schools run an i program. The program is designed after a, a program that's taught at Stanford. It's Steve Blank's customer discovery workshop that we teach. So, you know, look, read Steve Blank's, look at Steve Blank's. Love it. So I think, Obviously, customer discovery, first of all, I, I got to say, I love that positioning. Usually you hear product market fit or validation of a solution, but the crux of it is customers. Just the positioning alone is so much nicer than what we typically hear, especially because, I, I don't know, Alex, you probably live and breathe it too. So you probably hear that kind of stuff all the time, but positioning is everything. So I don't know. I, I think that has a nice uh, nice coat of paint over how it should be it, positioned. And even if you have the best products in sliced bread, you know, we didn't attack Germany by throwing people all, you know, we didn't, you know, we went on a beachhead mm. and then we expanded um, in World War II. It's, it's the same thing. It's not just do I have a great product, but it's where do I start because I have limited resources What's the limited beachhead that I can attack, have some success and protect, and then use that success to build to the larger total addressable market? Yeah. I mean, living in the government contracting world, that's my whole approach, right? I, I can't service the entire government. Uh, I wouldn't want to try, but we we have to know our customers, right? We have to to find that one office or that one person or that like get very intimate and customer intimacy with that person in that department to help them figure out how do I solve this specific problem for you without pushing products and services, right? Like, I'm just here to help you do what you want to do. And if it's my company and if it's this product and if it's the service, great. But if not, like, you know, how do I better serve, you know, the customers who are the U.S. citizens at the end of the day? So I love that as a government marketer because that's my entire world. And I will bet you, you don't, you, you either do DOD or you do civilian and you have some kind of sector experience. And there's a lot of reasons why you want to focus on that sector. Yes, we do not do both. DOD and civilian do not, it's not the same. Right. <laughs> it's definitely not the same. We focus on the civilian side. That's where we work. But yeah, absolutely. Totally different markets. 
from the private space, we are in the same scenario. So whereas you have like civilian versus DOD, it's more like, I don't know, mid-market startup versus enterprise. And that is usually where I see like cybersecurity companies absolutely fall apart. They will either start at the enterprise level and being able to go up against incumbents that right, it, it is just like pulling teeth. And then they always try to position it like, oh yeah, just rip this out, put us in. I'm sure that'll go over well. Never has, ever. And, and one of the things, for instance, in cybersecurity is how do your, how do your customers buy? Will they buy from an independent vendor or do they have a outsourced security company that runs that, that is their outsource? They run their security and you've got to sell to them. So part of customer discovery is not just understanding, do I have a good widget, but also how do people buy widgets like this? That is yeah. so perfectly said. I mean, that that's our soundbite right there. <laughs> how do people buy? And how long, too? I mean, maybe that's just me again in government marketing, but our sales cycle is like 18 to 36 months, right? It's yep. long. So, you know, what works in the private sector and all the attribution models, it just doesn't work. There's just too many people, too many touch points. But we need to know, like, how do they buy on what vehicles? What's the timeline? Who currently holds this work? How do we solve this problem? And how do we design the best team to put ourselves up there and be the differentiator to win? Again, at the end of the day, it's the people that we're really selling. It's not necessarily the product or service. It may not be any different than our competitors, but they trust us. You know, we're the people who can do the work the best. And one of the big issues you have when you have a long sales cycle is, how do I know if I have the right salesperson? <laughs> we typically don't, unfortunately. Salespeople come in. <laughs> yeah, so that's another thing that we spend a lot of time with, that I, with, with my clients is, how do you hire? What's the contract you make with somebody of, this is what I expect to see. This is the activity levels I expect to see. This is how I audit those activity levels. So you really need to understand the metrics of, for instance, what are the stages of a sales cycle? Does a person have enough deals in each stage of the sales cycle where you know they're going to go through? And then ruthlessly, ruthlessly don't allow... If it should take two months to get from this stage, from the, we gave them a demo, we understand what their need is. We're about to give a demo and a presentation to the team. If that's been in that stage for three months, it's not a deal anymore. Get it off your pipeline. And now your pipe, you want to keep, you want to keep your pipeline in each level full. Yeah, I think that's a mistake a lot of people make is sunk cost, right? You know, we've, we've tracked this client for so long. We've been trying to get this deal through this phase. It's going to come. It Maybe they'll move the end of the year, a new quarter, like whatever the excuse is, right? Um, but not a lot of people sort of do that grooming of their pipeline appropriately. And um, you don't want salespeople with happy ears. You don't want them <laughs> to have happy ears. You want to say, you know, maybe it will come through, but it doesn't count for you right now. You need to get another deal in this stage of the pipeline, and it needs to move in this amount of time. I think if we look at the lens of our current environment where large entities are currently going through swaths of layoffs, reflecting back on something you'd mentioned not, you know, a few moments ago about trimming, basically trimming the fat of cutting the teams in halves. How do you, you know, walk a founder, especially a first time founder through doing that kind of scenario? Obviously you're educating them on how to, you know, monitor and provide key metrics that they should track people against. But, you know, 
not every founder has fired someone before, let alone let go a huge... So the hardest decision to make is you have somebody who's really good at their job, really good, but they're not a cultural, which makes the rest of the team not. That's the hardest thing to counsel people out of. So when you're hiring... There's four characteristics you hire for. And I'm going to go from least important to most important. Least important is experience. Unless you need them to be productive the day you hire them, it is the least important. The next is cognitive ability. Do they have the smarts, the the ability to ask questions? Do they... Are they logical? Do they think fast? So cognitive ability. The third one is personality traits. So if you guys gave me a CFO test and I only had to work on it for 20 minutes, I'd nail it. I know how balance sheets work. I know I know the cash flow statements. I know all about it. I can do it. But if you made me sit down and do it for two hours, not only would I become very cranky, but my, I'm not detail-oriented. It's it, it's against my wiring. So hiring people, which is a mistake we make, often hiring people that don't that aren't wired for the job we've asked them to do. You don't want a salesperson who's a pleaser. It sounds right, but you want a salesperson who's going to ask hard questions most of the t- time. Every sales job requires. But you don't want a pleaser. You want somebody who's going to ask uncomfortable questions. What is your budget? So that, and the most important is, have you defined your culture and is this person a cultural fit? Because teams that have a cultural, culturally fit teams, teams that have a good, strong culture and they've hired for culture will outperform the best individual players, a group of individual all-stars every day. Totally agree. So here's the other thing about that. Everybody says, okay, Glenn, so how do you know if they're, how do you know if they're a cultural fit? And the answer is you don't say we only hire team players. (laughs) Are you a team player? We're not a family. (laughs) And we are a family. (laughs) So what you do say is give me a situation where one of your teammates was failing. What'd you do about it? You want to know that somebody's a problem solver. Give me a situation that one of your customers was was so angry, things had failed, they were going to leave. Tell me how you dealt with it. You want to ask situational questions that give you some idea of, yes, this person is a cultural fit. So here's a spinoff question because I love that. So culture is is always evolving, right? And so we're kind of in the middle of this now, right? Leaving startup, going into mid-market. The kind of people that succeed in a startup environment may not make it in the mid-market, right? There's a lot more rigor and process and you sort of have to, you know, start to play and cross-collaborate a lot more. And then that goes, you know, tenfold over in the enterprise level where you've got specialized departments, lots of red tape, lots of other things, processes that you need to follow. How do you evaluate a candidate who may be able to scale all of those and or how and when do you advise founders who may be really partial to someone who's been with their company for, you know, the first 10 years, the, the startup phase, and now are actually a problem in the mid-market phase because they no longer fit the, the culture that they need? So um, 
you have to look at your culture and constantly evaluate it. And people, if your culture is strong and if you enforce cultural values, people will opt out if they don't fit. So, you know, so, but you have to change the culture. So when, when you first start a company, most companies start on a loyalty culture because you can't pay. You're very thankful that the people stuck with you. You really owe them. But, but once you get to a mid-market company, once you get past small business and you start getting real profitable and growth, a loyalty culture becomes toxic because you want people who perform and you want people to see that everybody, you got to move to a performance culture. You want everybody to see that there are no laggards here, that we're a performance culture. So culture constantly evolves. It is the most difficult thing. It's very situational. There's no pat answer, but you always have to ask yourself, just like, do I still fit? Does my product still fit in the customer environment? Is my culture still a fit for who we are in the market? Yeah. Yeah. Very true. I don't know that I'm a, a enterprise person. I like the chaos of the, the small business and mid-market size, but, you know. Yeah. We, Self-identifying is important, as you said. I would opt out of that, right? I've been in big businesses. Yeah. It's fine. It gives you a certain work-life balance and other things that, you know, you can pursue. But I think you need to know yourself. And if you Absolutely. Like you, you know, there are people who don't mind bureaucracy. There's people who don't mind glacial change. There's people who don't mind politics, you know? And then yeah. there's the rest of us. They're startup folks. <laughs> Everyone on the call, <laughs> living the chaos. Absolutely. I'll, I'll tell you, if I look at my career, I started in startups right away, first thing. Mm. And we got bought by Raytheon. And I made it a year there. <laughs> and then I did a bunch of other startups. Most of them failed. But they were fun. They were invigorating. And then I did this thing called Call Technologies, which we were there six years. We made a lot of money. Sold it for $100 million cash. We did Progress. Sold it for three sixty. When we got bought by 3Com for $100 million cash, I had to work for 3Com for a year to get my earn out. And I was a general manager of a software division with about 300 people working for me. I had less autonomy. I had less authority, autonomy, less impact. I hated it. The day after my contract was over, I was gone. So, and that's when I started my turnaround career, which was great because the longest thing I ever did there was two years. And then I got bored with that. So coaching, I'm in a new company every day, two or three, every day I'm working on new problems. So I'm a chaos junkie. <laughs> that's a good point. A lot of these sales come with, you know, the golden handcuffs of, you know, we need this person to execute for X amount of time. Do you find that those are, are beneficial or, or do, or, you know, exactly what you said, right? You see a lot of people sort of do the bare minimum for the time that they're sort of allotted to, to take their money and then I'm out. So I, I don't think most people will do the bare minimum. If you've got an exit like that, you've got this competitive spirit where you, so for me, it was the competitive spirit. The, I wanted to know I could make a difference and it was not making a difference that got me out of there. It was mm -hmm. not being able to make a difference. And it was also the backbiting and the jealousy of other 
you know, groups. It was all the, all the, the problems of, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell, not a big fan of Malcolm Gladwell, but in his first book, he talks about humans can only really work well as a team and identify with shared values up to a hundred people. And it's something in our brain, some thing in our brain that sort of wires us that way. And once you get past a hundred, you need to figure out how to get people so that they don't do the backbiting and stuff. And most corporations don't do that. Yeah, I haven't heard the hundred rule, but there's something about like personal friends, right? Like the average person can only have like 12 connections or 20 meaningful connections in their life before it gets, you know. Yeah, so in that book, it's it's interesting because he talks about like every animal. There's a thing in our brain that you measure it. You can tell how many people they have. So like porpoises are 40 and <laughs> we're 100. So what was the name of that company? Gore-Tex. Gore. Gore-Tex company? Mm-hmm. They used to, they built a plant. It'd have 100 parking spaces in it. Once the parking lot was filled, they'd create a new division. So, you know, at first it was, it was used as fill for insulation for jackets, coats. Then they started a new one. It became, they used it for bulletproof vests. And they created a new one. They started making helmets. Then they did a new one in it. They even did floss. So like most floss is based on their product because it doesn't break. Interesting product evolution for sure. Who knew floss came from the insides of jackets? Hey, I mean, if you compare it to the ball company with the ball jars, they're a DOD contractor, which is just a really wild journey. Yeah, seriously. I I think they actually license the name to whoever manufactures the, the jars now, and they're primarily on the DOD side or whatever they do. Well, I think we're coming up on time. So I guess this is the part where we ask you, like, what would you like to sort of boil it down to, right? If you could sort of gift our audience a final piece of advice or just big lesson learned across your you know, very diverse and illustrious career. What would you say um, to our audience and any upcoming or current entrepreneurs? So what I'd say is you may be very smart. You may be very intuitive. You may have a lot of EQ. Talk to people. Challenge what you think. Get real product. Make sure you have product market fit. Talk to customers. Talk to people in the ecosystem. And also, you know, get an accountability buddy. Don't just go to get somebody who has no ulterior motives. No, your wife has an ulterior motive. Your husband has an ulterior motive. Your CFO, your marketing VP, everybody has an ulterior motive. Find somebody who you can be accountability, accountability buddies with. Neutral parties. I'll help you if you help me. There you go. I love it. Great words of advice. Well, thank you so much, Glenn. This has been a cool blast from the past and, and learned a lot more about other pockets of your life and your career that, you know, we hadn't intersected in. So we really appreciate you taking the time today to talk to Elliot and I about, just, you know, life and careers and startups in general. I learned a lot. I had, a, I had fun in this conversation. And I enjoyed so- it as well. I'm happy to do it. I'll do it again. This has been Mastering the Art of Failing. Your hosts have been Alex Love and Elliot Volkman with special guest Glenn Hellman. To get the latest updates, go to failingpod.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast platforms. All viewpoints expressed on this series solely represent the individual speakers and guests. 
who share them and do not reflect the opinions of the companies they represent nor our sponsors. This has been a Chaos Production. Embrace it.